So welcome back, everybody, um, for this evening's talk. It's, um, and I, as I think a lot of you know who've been coming to Sims for a while this year, we're, our theme has been the teachings in threes. So we've been covering the Buddhist teachings that are presented in groups of three. And most recently, we've been exploring the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so for this month, our focus is on the poison of delusion. And for those of you who were here last week, you know that Carrie Peterson gave a really nice talk on this subject, an introduction to this topic of delusion. And so I'd like to carry on this week with some of the themes that she brought up and maybe a few other little twists. And I know she mentioned that um, this tendency to delusion was something that she felt was especially strong in her practice. And I can say that I feel very, very much the same, that it's really one of the most challenging for me. I think that of all these three poisons, delusion is the most difficult. And it's so pervasive and it can be so subtle, so hard to see, you know, we don't even realize that we're caught in it. And sometimes when we're caught in it, it can be so comfortable and reassuring that we really don't want to see it. At least that's how it feels to me. So it's not an easy one to work with. It's not as straightforward as maybe as greed and hatred are difficult as those can be. So I first learned about delusion from the Buddhist perspective um, some years ago when kind of near the beginning of my practice when I was on a retreat down at Cloud Mountain actually I think and our teacher gave a talk about the three poisons as well as something about the three Buddhist personality types that go along with the three poisons, the greedy type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. And this teaching about the personality types is found in the Vasudhimaga, which is a really famous Theravadan uh, manual or commentary on how to practice that was written in the 5th century by the monk and scholar and commentator Buddha Gosa. And these personality types, they're described kind of because people with different tendencies maybe are more suited to different types of meditation and places to meditate. So it's kind of a guide to help the teachers and the students select what will work best for them. And in the manual, he describes these three types on the basis of how they act. And the descriptions are kind of funny, and they're sort of what you might think they might be. The greedy type is very graceful and careful in everything they do. You know, they really like beautiful things. And they arrange their clothing just so... They eat slowly, savor their food, really enjoying the taste. And the aversive type, on the other hand, is very tight and rigid and tends to do things in kind of a hasty and sort of irritated way. 
they wear tight clothing, they eat very quickly, and they complain about the food. And then there is the deluded time that is sort of muddled and kind of hesitant and uncertain about what they're doing. They wear their clothes in a loose and sort of messy way. And when they eat, they drop bits of food into their dish or onto the table or onto their clothes. And they kind of sit there eating with their mind astray, thinking of this and that. So when we heard these descriptions, you know, in this Dharma talk, we all sort of laughed. It's kind of funny. But then later on at one of the meals, I was thinking about this, you know, and thinking about these poisons and stuff. And I looked down and I noticed all of these crumbs on the table around my plate. And I noticed this stain on my t-shirt where I spilt curry on it the other day. And then I looked a little more carefully and I realized my t-shirt was actually on inside out. So I thought, uh-oh, I think I know which type I am. And um, of course, we all have plenty of all three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so there's no need to get too caught up in these personality types. But I think uh, noticing that made me a little bit more aware of my own tendency to sort of get caught up in my thoughts and my daydreams and not be that connected to what's right in front of me. So last week, Carrie talked about the... Um, how in the Buddhist teachings, uh, the personification of delusion is Mara, who's a sort of a kind of demon-like being and who the monk and scholar Nyaponikatera describes as the person personification of the forces antagonistic to enlightenment. So in other words, everything that gets in the way of us actually seeing the truth clearly. So Mara is kind of a trickster and a deceiver who leads us astray and keeps us kind of confused and so we don't see things the way they are. And so he tried his tricks on the Buddha too. And so tonight I thought it would be nice to share with you the famous story about how Mara came to tempt the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, trying to discourage him and getting him to abandon his quest for awakening. And it's a really good story. I think probably a lot of you have heard it before, but it's always nice to hear. And it's also nice because it reminds us that delusion is a challenge for all of us. It was even a challenge for the Buddha. And it gives us a good illustration of some of the different ways that delusion can creep into our minds and fool us. So here's the story. So Siddhartha came to Bodh Gaya and sat down under the Bodhi tree to meditate. And by this point in his career, he was very determined. He vowed he wouldn't move from that spot until he had reached full awakening. And when Mara, who is the personification of delusion, recognized that he was this determined and he was on the verge of actually reaching enlightenment 
and freeing himself from the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, well, he was horrified that this might happen. And so he took immediate action to try to prevent it. So he did everything he could think of to deter Siddhartha and break his resolve. So first he thought he would tempt him with sex and romance, and so he brought his beautiful daughters to try to seduce him. And you might notice their names, Tanha or craving, Arati or aversion, and Raga or passion, very appropriate, you know. But Siddhartha just waved them away and says, no, no, I see you, Mara. As lovely as your daughters may be, getting involved with them isn't the path to freedom, not what I want to do. Any pleasure I might have with them would never last very long. So that didn't work. And so then Mara tried to tempt Siddhartha with wealth and power. He promised him riches and a great kingdom. He told him, you know, look at all the good you could do, you know, in that sort of a position, all the poor people you could help, and so on and so forth. But again, Siddhartha said, no, I see you, Mara. That isn't the way for me either. Riches and power can disappear overnight. They're never certain. Seeing that he couldn't dissuade the uh, Siddhartha by offering them all these wonderful things that most of us would be really eager to have, Mara decided to try to frighten him instead. So he appeared before him disguised as a world leader who was mounted on his elephant with this big army of monstrous demons with these frightening, powerful, and deadly weapons. And so they attacked Siddhartha. But he remained calm, and he sat still and unharmed. I see you, Mara, he said. And in some versions of this story, they say that all of these weapons that were thrown at him turned into beautiful flowers and just fell to the ground, not harming anybody. So when that didn't work, Mara tried to dissuade Siddhartha through the delusion of doubt. So he says to him, you know, who are you to try to take on this quest? The seed of enlightenment belongs to the greatest and only the greatest. And how do you figure that this is you? I mean, who are you anyway? Here you are. You're going against all of our traditions and our teachings. You don't even know what you're doing. Go home and practice the way the great sages have taught you and forget about all this quest for enlightenment. You won't get anywhere with what you're doing now, and you don't even have any right to try to even do this. So then and there, the Buddha, or Siddhartha, he's not the Buddha yet, Siddhartha reached out his right hand to touch the earth, and he says, No, Mara, I do have a right to be here. The earth itself bears witness. And so he continued unmoving. And it said that as the morning star rose in the sky on the new day, Siddhartha Gautama realized awakening and became the Buddha. So it's an inspiring and beautiful story. And you can see all these different ways from this story that Mara, the force of delusion, 
tried to get into Siddhartha's mind and get him off track and confuse him and get him to abandon his quest for awakening. And it's, you know, it's not really so different from the ways that delusion works on us and the kinds of thoughts and feelings that come into our minds and, you know, discourage us from practice, discourage us from doing what we know that we really would wish to do with our lives according to our highest aspirations. So we know that delusion enters through our attraction to pleasant things and the wanting that we have. You know, we get that idea that if we just get those pleasant things, you know, wealth or power or recognition or romance or whatever it is, you know, um, that's going to be the key to our happiness. And these ideas come pretty naturally to all of us as humans, I think, and our culture certainly reinforces them and encourages us to think this way. Or it can enter through aversion and pain and fear. We don't like what's happening to us, so we lash out to get rid of it, or maybe we run away from it. And yet a lot of times, just as it was in this case of Siddhartha, the fearful things that we're so worried about, they might not even be real. We're afraid or upset about things we think will happen to us, things we have that haven't even occurred yet and maybe never are going to occur. But we still react as if, you know, all this bad stuff is going to happen, fighting or backing away in fear. So here we have delusion in league with this poison of aversion. And then there is doubt. Mara tries to discourage Siddhartha by attacking his faith in himself and in what he knows. You know, you don't know what you're doing, he says. Why do you think this is going to help you? And what's most often the most damaging for us when we hear that voice is, he says, who are you to think you can do this anyway? What gives you the right to think you can awaken? Who are you? You know, you're just a nobody. Who are, you're just feeling, you're fooling yourself. You're never going to get anywhere with this. You can't do it. You know, and I think we've all heard that voice in our heads too. You can't do this. But what was Siddhartha's answer to all of these temptations and threats and, you know, seeds of doubt? He said, I see you, Mara. So he recognized that everything that Mara said was a deception. And he was especially strong on this subject of doubt, you know, really firmly putting his hand down on the earth and saying, the earth is my witness, I have the right to do this. And because he could see through all these delusions and he didn't really believe what Mara was telling him, he wasn't affected by them. And Mara didn't have any power over him. So this is what we need to learn how to do too when delusion creeps in. You know, we need to get really familiar with all of these stories that delusion can tell us. So we recognize it and we're able to say, 
Ah, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. So all those stories we need to um, know very well. The stories we tell ourselves about how if we just get this pleasant thing or get rid of this unpleasant thing, finally our lives are going to be perfect. The stories we tell ourselves about how whatever happening is all our fault or somebody else's fault or how it shouldn't be happening at all, even though, I mean, it already is happening, so it's kind of immaterial whether it should or not. Or that feeling we have that whatever is going on is always going to be this way, that whatever is happening is going to always be like this and never going to change. Or the sense that all of this is beyond us, we're never going to get it right. And, you know, all of those other things, familiar things that we think and say to ourselves whenever our view isn't in line with the truth of dukkha or with the truth of um, anicca or with the truth of anatta, with the truth of suffering, impermanence, and not-self, those three characteristics that we spent a lot of time studying earlier in the year. So one aspect of delusion is believing something that isn't true, you know, in the sense of believing something that's not really in line with the truth of the three characteristics and being wrong about what we're seeing. And when we're caught up in this kind of delusion, we can be really, really sure about our opinions. We're convinced we're right. We're determined to hold on to our views no matter what evidence there might be to suggest that we're actually, you know, maybe not so right and things might be otherwise. And when we're caught up in greed and hatred, a lot of times that's kind of the way we feel. We are very rigid. Rigid ideas about what we want, rigid ideas about what we don't want, how things should be, and what we need to do to make them that way. So there can be this aspect of delusion where we're really sure, but we're really, really wrong. <laughs> but delusion doesn't only have that kind of face, and it doesn't only show up in connection with greed and hatred. It has other aspects, too, that might be harder to see and can be harder to work with than some of the familiar stories we have about what we want and what we don't want. And so to help us get a fuller perspective on these different aspects of delusion, I'd like to talk about delusion now through the perspective of the five hindrances. And I think a lot of you have heard of the five hindrances, right? How many have heard of the five hindrances? You know, several, quite a few. Um, and if you aren't familiar with them, they're craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. So there are these five things that really, really commonly come into our minds and hinder us from really being able to be mindful and see things as they are. You know, when we get caught up in them, we kind of get confused and lost about what we're seeing. 
So craving and aversion we've talked about quite a bit in our exploration of the poisons. Um, and we often recognize those two hindrances and struggle with them. And we may kind of see the delusion and wrong assumptions behind them. But we might not pay as much attention to the other three hindrances, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt, or see how those are ways or kind of forms that delusion creeps in too. So the Pali word for delusion is moha. And um, some of its translations are delusion, which is probably the most common, ignorance, wrong view. But as I was preparing for this talk and for the one I gave on Sunday, I came across an article by Sharon Salzberg that was entitled, Delusion is a Hindrance to Insight. And in this article, she brings up an additional trans, uh, um, translation or definition that I thought was kind of interesting, that moha can also mean something like stupefied. And this is something that we can connect pretty closely to this hindrance of sloth and torpor. You know, when we're kind of stuck in that, we feel kind of stupefied. And when we're in that place, a lot of times um, we have the feeling that we don't have the mental energy to pay attention. We might say that we're spaced out or in a daze that... Um, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes the problem really is tiredness and sleepiness, and what we need most is just to get some rest. And I feel sort of like I spent most of the weekend, I'm kind of coming to you out of spending time in this realm of thought, thought sloth and torpor, because I came down with some kind of a flu-like bug on Friday afternoon. Not COVID. I tested myself several times. Not COVID. But it put me into that kind of place where I was just blah, not feeling good, sleepy, dull, achy, bleh, bleh, you know, mental energy, sort of nothing, just bleh. <laughs> and so, you know, that feeling became very familiar, and I had plenty of time to reflect on, oh, this is that, you know. And there is a lot of not seeing and not knowing, and I even was able to sort of feel the kind of vague, when I started to feel better, so I wasn't really in pain much, I was just sort of really tired, the kind of pleasantness of being so bluff that I had a perfect excuse to do absolutely nothing. <laughs> so really good example of that place of sloth and torpor. But it isn't always happening just when we're tired or sleepy or sick or something like that, although sometimes it does. That mind state can also be a way of reacting to the unpleasant and protecting ourselves from things that we would really rather not know so well or see so clearly. And in her article, Sharon describes this in a really good way. She says, when we're in this state, we feel numb, cocooned in a fog, disconnected, and typically not caring that we are in this state. 
In fact, we might even like it. When lost in a fog, we don't have to be too aware of discomfort. And, you know, that's kind of the thing. When we're stupefied, we don't have to be too aware of the things that make us feel uneasy, or that we don't want to look at, or that we don't want to face. And, you know, for some of us, the default when we're faced with something unpleasant is to get irritated and angry and lash out, as we discussed last month. But we might also respond by just kind of spacing out, retreating into fantasy, ignoring whatever it is that's unpleasant, um, pretending it isn't really there, distracting ourselves in all kinds of ways that we can, you know, with TV or movies or novels, food, alcohol, shopping, drugs, whatever. We have so many options to distract ourselves or to that we can use to kind of numb ourselves so we can forget about the things that we'd rather not face. And I don't know about you, but I know that for me, this is definitely my go-to option when I'm faced with something that I don't want to deal with. <laughs> to avoid it, to ignore it, to distract myself, to disconnect. I mean, I really can see this in the house projects that I've got, you know, my <coughs> kind of <coughs> toilet that doesn't quite work right or the sink that doesn't drain quite right, etc., etc., that I know I need to get taken care of, but I don't really want to deal with it. And other things, too. You know, so usually my own challenge is not so much... Um, controlling my temper when I get into an unpleasant or difficult situation, although, you know, certainly that happens from time to time. But it's a bigger challenge is to actually being willing to be stay connected with the situation and respond to what's happening instead of just trying to avoid or ignore it or spacing out. And I think that some of you may feel that you too have this tendency, this kind of rather avoid or ignore or distract when you're faced with something you don't want to see. And it's important to note here that this tactic, tactic of ignoring and avoiding what we'd rather not see is a lot of times it's our mind's way of protecting ourselves from things that might be too hard to handle or overwhelming. And so it's good in one way to respect these boundaries and to know and when you know there's times when it really is better to just sort of back off and not go so far into something that's just going to be too challenging and challenging and too overwhelming for us to deal with right at the present time but it's true too that um, a lot of times our minds might think we need protecting from a lot of things that really aren't a danger to us at all. Or it might become so accustomed to that somewhat pleasant feeling of just being in a kind of a semi-dream world where we're sort of absorbed in our own fantasies or someone else's fantasies and not really quite connecting with things that it kind of likes staying in that place. 
So when we notice ourselves doing this sort of disconnecting and spacing out and avoiding, it's good to pay attention to that and really kind of notice what's going on and see if this poison of delusion is happening in this kind of frame. So the next hindrance I'd like to bring up is the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And this is another one that a lot of times it kind of gets short shrift when we talk about the different barriers to awareness. We don't talk about it all that much and don't necessarily associate it with delusion, but especially that worry part of this hindrance. I mean, what is this a lot of the times but delusion? You know, it's like those weapons that Mara used to attack the Buddha. When we get lost in worry, we get lost in our fears and our projections about what all these dangerous things might do to us. You know, things, again, that aren't actually happening now, that might never happen. Scenarios that really exist only in our own minds. So when we're stuck in this hindrance, we really are stuck in a prison of delusion. And now this isn't to say that we shouldn't anticipate potential problems and prepare for them. Definitely we should. And nor it is to say that there's not some cases where there really is danger that we need to think about and do something about. You know, this very well might be true. But even if this is true, when we're in this hindrance of worry, it makes it really hard for us to actually see what's going on and take the actions that might really protect us from the things we worry about. We're so overwhelmed by all these possible scenarios about all these bad things that happen, that could happen, that we're paralyzed and we don't know where to turn. So finally, we come to the hindrance of doubt. And I mentioned this before as one of the ways that Mara tried to prevent the Buddha from reaching awakening by sowing these seeds of doubt in his understanding, doubt in his abilities, in his right even to uh, attempt this path of freedom. And we can certainly get caught up in these delusions too falling for this idea that whatever happens in our practice is all about us, all about our own worthiness or our unworthiness, rather than, you know, really recognizing that if we just keep going, the process is going to work, you know, just keep going step by step and having faith. But instead we forget and think, you know, I can't do this because it's all about me. Carrie talked about this last week and how easily can we can be deluded about our own potential. And so this poison of hindrance, <coughs> poison and hindrance of self-doubt is very much that type of thing and something we really need to see and be aware of when it arises. And, and I think we all really have to struggle with, with that demon when we feel, you know, discouraged to just remember that it's not really all about us to trust the process. But delusion and doubt can be a little more complicated than self-doubt. Um, and all doubt isn't a hindrance, 
and doubt and uncertainty certainly aren't always part of a deluded mindset. In fact, we all know um, that some of our deepest delusion is when we're absolutely sure that we're right about something that we're completely wrong about. And there are also a lot of times in our practice when not knowing and uncertainty are just the way it is. You know, there's a lot of things that we haven't as yet seen there are a lot of things that we don't as yet fully understand. And so we might say that there's some delusion here, you know, in the sense that we're not seeing everything clearly. But if we realize that and we know that we don't know, then it doesn't need to be a problem. But on the other hand, there are times when delusion, doubt, confusion, and uncertainty, all of these get all mixed together in a really confusing and difficult place. Last week when Carrie talked about how we can be identified with uncertainty and not knowing might kind of fit in here. And this state of delusion and confusion, part of it can be from just not paying attention. You know, if we fall prey to that tendency to space out, to get lost in thought and in fantasy and to disconnect and to numb ourselves, then we don't really know what's going on. And so when something happens that forces us back into the present to kind of wake up, then we're confused. We're like, oh, what's happening? What's happening? We're off somewhere and we didn't really see. And then it's also true that if we're not really connecting with our experience, a lot of times we can feel sort of indifferent and ambivalent about it. It's sort of like when we come in contact to something that's neutral. A lot of the time we don't even notice it because it doesn't grab us with something pleasant or, you know, some, catch our attention with something painful. And it's really easy for delusion to arise in that kind of situation. So as I say, we might ignore this neutral thing completely, or we might just be sort of unsure of how we feel about it. Do we like it? Do we dislike it? Do we have any opinion about it at all? <laughs> we aren't sure. But then when we see other people around us who seem to be very certain and have very strong opinions and very strong likes and dislikes, then we might start to compare ourselves with these people and think, huh, you know, if they're so sure and I'm not, what's wrong with me? We start to doubt our own perceptions. And we think that if we're uncertain or don't have a strong opinion about something, maybe there's something wrong with us. And so we start reacting with this uncertainty and hesitancy because and you know that's another face of delusion Sharon Salzberg says in her article that in some sense delusion is a state of not realizing what it is we actually know and what we don't know and that's kind of what's going on here we we don't have the clarity to really appreciate what we know or to really understand that we don't know, and that's just the way it is. But we also need to be a little bit careful here because, as I said, you know, before, sometimes it's just the fact that we don't know. 
sometimes we don't know because we're not able to see clearly, but sometimes what's actually there to see is far from clear. The conditions of our lives are, a lot of times, are pretty uncertain and pretty ambiguous and pretty confusing. In his poem, A Letter to My Daughter, Teddy Macker says, Life appears to be fundamentally ambiguous, wily, every colored, unpinned downable. I like that word, unpinned downable. And big decisions, decisions concerning relationships, concerning children, concerning death, are rarely made clearly. And I think we probably, a lot of us would feel that this is true for our own lives too, that a lot of these big things are pretty complicated and not so clear. So in some ways, being uncertain and, you know, failing to latch onto everything as either pleasant, unpleasant, wanted, or un unwanted, you know, in this kind of black and white mode, might actually be a kind of wisdom. Because things really aren't so black and white. If we're too caught up in delusion, we might not even trust that perception. Because, as Sharon says, we don't know what it is we actually know and what we don't know. The good thing, though, is that if we persist in our practice, eventually we'll see through some of this fog of delusion and realize what it is we actually know and what we don't know. And when that happens, delusion doesn't have to be a poison for us anymore. So in the teachings on these different mind states or personality types associated with hatred, greed, and delusion. Each of these three poisons is associated with a positive quality that develops when we start to free ourselves of these painful mind states. So the tendency toward greed matures into faith and appreciation and gratitude for beautiful things. The tendencies toward aversion matures into discriminating wisdom and a really deep understanding of dukkha. And the tendency to delusion is especially associated with the maturation into equanimity. Although the other two tendencies, when we see them, free ourselves from them, they tend to help promote equanimity too. But the way that the change happens, I think, is a bit different with delusion than with greed and hatred. When our delusion is associated with greed or hatred, we're really caught up in reactivity, which is the far enemy, the opposite of equanimity. And so when we start to see through the faulty assumptions that get us caught in greed or hatred, then this reactivity starts to diminish. But when we're caught up in this deluded mind state that tends to disconnect, numb ourselves, retreat into fantasy, we're more caught up in what they call the near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference. Because, you know, we try to keep ourselves a bit separate from whatever is actually happening so we don't have to feel anything too overwhelming or too uncomfortable or maybe see anything too frightening or disturbing. So there's this sort of disconnect that might bring a kind of indifference. But if we're able to resist that tendency to 
just kind of zone out or become numb in the face of what is confusing or uncertain or difficult for us, then we can learn to see the ambiguity that ambiguity that's really there as it is and the uncertainty that's really there as it is. And so our attitude can mature into our true equanimity where we really see and accept the kind of mixed nature of a lot of our experience, the ambivalence and the uncertainty with understanding and with grace. And you just can accept, okay, you know, this is the way it is. Now this is the way it is. So working with delusion is kind of like waking up from a trance. (laughs) You know, it's that trance of desire or the trance of aversion or especially maybe what we're thinking about this month is the trance of simply disconnecting and spacing out and distracting ourselves so we don't have to see too clearly when we'd rather not. Either unwilling to see or unable to see. And it's really challenging to do this waking up since delusion can be so subtle, it can be so pervasive, and, you know, let's admit it, there are times when it can be pretty comforting, you know? We don't really want to give it up because there are a lot of things we would rather not have to deal with and rather not have to see. So it's hard. But then we also need to think about what we really want in our lives and what are our highest aspirations. Do we want to be lost in the fog or to actually be present and here, awake for our own lives? So I'd like to close with a short poem by Jane Hirschfield called Meeting the Light Completely. And... You know, her poems can be a little bit, I don't know, I don't know the right word, but not always easy to interpret, even though they're beautiful. But I think this one uh, sort of touches on the, the wonder we can open to in the things that are very close to us, very every day, when we're willing to see, and the gift of gifts of being with what is. So, meeting the light completely. Even the long beloved was once an unrecognized stranger. Just so, the chipped lip of a blue glazed cup, blown field of a yellow curtain, might also, flooding and falling, ruin your heart. A table painted with roses, an empty clothesline. Each time the found world surprises, that is its nature. And then what is said by all lovers, what fools we were not to have seen. So when we're caught in delusion, such fools we are not to see that found world and its nature. So let's sit together for a moment to close.
just sort of take it in. Each time the found world surprises, that is its nature. And then what is said by all lovers, what fools we were not to have seen. Thanks to all of you for your attention tonight. I really appreciate your being here and listening. And so now we have some time for um, you to share any of your thoughts about this poison of delusion. If you have any questions, you can ask your questions or just sort of your own, you know, share from your own experiences if you would like to do that too. Yes. And I know we have the microphone right here, so you can take the take the hot seat, I guess, as they call it. Hello? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if this will resonate for anybody else, um, but I think that when you were talking about the, you know, the being in your own fog, being in your own mind, that is definitely me. Um, this just feels so loud. Um, <laughs> And I guess I was feeling like I was I was kind of struggling because I felt like, well, in my work life, I'm not like that. Like I'm forced to I, I used to be when I was a project manager and when I was younger and less um, less uh, boy, words are really hard for me today. Um, hadn't been in my career as long and less knowledgeable, mm-hmm. um, there would be these situations that would be very um, challenging for me and where it was just seemed unknowable and it just seemed like impossible to figure out based on my skill set. And now I know, I don't, I so rarely ever uh, have those circumstances just because I know the questions to ask. I know the baby steps to take to get to the place. It might take a while, but I know how to eventually get there with the help of my teams and et cetera. And I think that just in all the times that you were talking about that unknowable and it started making me realize and connect the dots that that's the way that I am in my work life because I've been forced in my career to keep getting better and better at practicing and, and getting better at that. And I don't have that in my personal life. It's just me trying to push myself to get out of the fog where in my life, I, I've always put all my energy towards my work and not my personal life. And so if I'm going to be in my head where it's nice and happy, it's going to be in my personal life because that's my relaxing mm-hmm, space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so now going into this practice of meditation, I'm finding that I'm trying to take more time for myself, slow down my life a little more. So I have the time to dig into these things, but it's now starting to occur to me based on what you're bringing to light is just that I need to kind of approach it in the same way that as practice. And, you know, maybe there's somebody I need to be able to 
bounce ideas off in order to be able to kind of dig in a little by little by little about so that I can kind of get myself out of the the fog and a little bit more aware of, of what's going on. Um, so thank you for that. That was a really helpful um, thought process for me. So. Yeah, that's that's good. And and I can really appreciate what you're saying, too, because about being forced to be there for for your work life and your personal life being the place where you can go into the fog. And I think a lot of us have that feeling, too, like <laughs> there's spaces where we have to pay attention. And then finally, it's sort of like at the end of the day, we relax, we come home, and then we just want to go into the fog. <laughs> and I think that it's a very uh, real tendency and that we need to really be patient with ourselves about. And I, I like that Jane Hirschfield poem in a way because it was sort of pointing out being more awake in this everyday part of life and not in the fog, how we notice the beauty of the everyday things in life. And eventually we may get to the place where we would rather be in that space of actually seeing the beauty of things as they are rather than being in our own fog. But it's a struggle. I mean, and I know that I really struggle with this, too. Yeah, I don't think I really realized how much I was in my head yeah. until more recently. <laughs> um, so, mm -hmm. thanks. Thank you. Yes? Oh, okay. Yeah, we can go back and forth. Okay, let's see. Austin. Um you can unmute and ask your question. Yes, thank you so much for the talk. Mm -hmm. And it's good to see you, Sangha. I have a friend at my one of my old jobs. Uh, she posted it on uh, social media that her her husband uh, found out less than a year ago that he had uh, skin cancer, and he died um, mm. within the year. And she just posted a lot of pictures and images of him. I never met him, but I knew her pretty well. And so initially, you know, I just, he's young, you know, my age, relatively young, mm -hmm. 30s. So I have a lot of, it just brought up a lot of fear of death. And then I had another friend who died in a car accident earlier this year out of nowhere, you know. And I know, I know that in the, in the, in the practice, we know that life is impermanent. But that fear of death is still there. So I was trying to interrogate where in my life is delusion showing up and where is it most real in my life and a challenge to, to truly practice or with and have tea with Mara, maybe. And uh, it's like fear of death is probably it. And so I was just curious, you know, I, I read the Sharon Salzberg quote again in the context of that, that you had shared about knowing and not knowing. And then I began to, you know, contemplate maybe it's it's not what I know about death, it's what I don't know about death, you know. Mm -hmm. so I wanted your thoughts about, you know, on this path towards awakening, you know, how is delusion related to death? 
and um, whether or not you have any insight about this topic. Thank you for listening. Oh, well, thank you for your question. This is a really, really, really good question. And it really, it goes right to the heart of the practice, I think. And, and you know, one of our biggest, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure who said it. I read it not too long ago, but quote some quote about how we all know we're going to die, but none of us really believes it. I mean, so I think that for all of us that fear fear of an avoidance of death is huge. And, you know, we are encouraged in the practice to be willing to open to, to that. And I think it's really frightening. I mean, I've gone through periods in, in my own practice when um, I was on a, especially on a retreat one time, and I had a very strong experience of a, a sense of anatta, <coughs> sort of <coughs> having this sense of, um, you know, the layers of personality kind of falling away, and so there was just this sort of identity there with what knows, and then this thought came up, well, when that disappears, and then all of a sudden, all this fear of death came up, fear of death that I never even knew I had, <laughs> you know, so I was just, I was just, I was just out of it, you know. It was just overwhelming to me, you know. All I could really do to calm myself down really was to, was meta. That was the only thing that worked. But it, it kind of brought up an awareness of that. And I think as we continue in the practice and we have more of an understanding of anatta and the unsolidness of self and the way that this thing we call me kind of comes together and falls apart, comes together and falls apart. It isn't as continuous as we think. I think for me, the more I know, understand that, it helps a little bit with the fear of death because I have that sense that I'm not so solid anyway. And yet, the fear is still there. And I imagine for most of us, we will have some fear because we're really going into the unknown. So I really ap appreciate your question. And, and, you know, facing that is facing some of the most difficult areas of delusion and all of our human life, I think, really challenging. So, you know, thank you for a wonderful question. Let's see. Yes, go ahead. <coughs> so, um, a lot of things spoke to me, but um, I want to say some things and ask some things about self-doubt uh, because I have more than my fair share of it 
um, you know, funnily, it's actually exclusively in the area of work. Mm. And uh, so we're all different. <laughs> but uh, that's why I was really fascinated by the story you told about the Buddha and Mara and how he responded to this uh, suggestion that he was not good enough. And, uh, you know, if it was me, first of all, that would totally get me. Uh, mm-hmm. But second, I would um, I would go into lawyer mode and uh, kind of like lay out a cogent argument about how, um, you know, uh, there is no need for doubt and I am worthy. And he didn't do any of that. He just put his hand on the ground and says, the ground is, the earth is my witness. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really fascinated by kind of the type of self-knowledge required to not have this doubt uh, and a little bit frankly lost of how to get from here to there in terms of like I don't know whether it's a delusion I believe it so uh, it seems I mean the only answer I could come up with is like it takes a lifetime of practice but that's like a little vague so if you have any (laughs) thoughts (laughs) on how to get from there to here (laughs) Yeah. Well, first I want to say that you're total you're definitely not alone. <laughs> because I I think all of us probably have that demon of self-doubt and for some it's in work area, for some other areas. I mean, we probably mostly most of us have had it come up from time to time in our in our practice too. And I know for me, one of the biggest problems I have is the way that the self-doubt kind of links with this idea of perfectionism and thinking that if I can't do it perfectly, then it's all wrong. And I mean, that, that, that just isn't true. I mean, you know, whenever we're learning anything, you know, we make mistakes, we do it kind of half not so great for a while, and then we get more skillful and stuff. So I think, you know, part of it is trying to notice that sense of perfectionism and notice those times when I feel like I can't, I can't do this perfectly, so I can't do it. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it's the sort of the way our society has this, oh, there's winners and losers, and you have to be the best. So I think, you know, part of it is to try to notice that attitude when it comes up and give yourself permission to to make mistakes and and learn, you know, learn how to do things, you know, be re- recognized, you know, no, I don't know quite how to do this, but if I work at it, I, I can. <coughs> and, and then to see the other thing that I think helps, and, and this is something, all of this, like I'm still working on it, I think all of us are all working on it, is to sort of disconnect in some ways this 
kind of sense of me from this sense of achieving and being, I'm the person that can do this right. I'm the person that can do this perfectly. Or I'm a good person if I can do this. I'm a bad person if I can't do this. So, I mean, the more we're identifying, our own worth, idea of our own worth is identified with whether we can do something or not, the more self-doubt we're going to have and the more problems self-doubt will create. So kind of the self-identification, kind of loosening, thinning of this self-identification, I think that's a another thing that really helps. And I think it, with the practice, I mean, it's kind of, you've got to get to some point where you recognize that because as long as you're stuck in this idea that it's all, it's all about me and it's all about me doing all this myself and my progress and how good of a yogi I am, at some time point you've got to get that, let that go because it only makes more and more of me and less and less of freedom. So those are two aspects, I think. You know, the perfectionism and the identification help. But man, is it a struggle. <laughs> it's a difficult area. Thank you so much. Oh, you welcome. hit the nail on the head for me anyway. I'm very identified Good. with my work. So I'll get working on that. <laughs> Good, I'm glad if it helps. <laughs> Yeah, I know it seems like it takes forever, but <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Let's see, maybe time for one or two more, if anybody has comments or questions, either from online or in the room. Let's see, okay, go ahead, please. I don't think anybody is raising their hand. Oh, wait, somebody is raising their hand online. Okay, Emery. Please unmute yourself, and I just saw it just now, and um, ask your question. Thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering, I really enjoyed your talk, Lyndall, and um, really appreciate everything that you've said. I was really struck with the opening poem, actually. Mm -hmm. um, just really kind of identified with it like I feel like it kind of described my the way I operate a lot of the time I'm just like one thing after another after another after another and just like productive and hard working and doing 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 and then yeah every once in a while I'll be like oh my god like a drip on a leaf you know and I'll just be <laughs> like oh and I'll have that moment of not being so identified with everything I'm doing, but I don't know. They both seem so real. Like the, that whole first part of that poem, I was like, yep, yep. That baby <laughs> is real. That baby is thick. Like there is a lot for that mama to do. And yet she can see the geese. Yeah, I was, and so I'd love to hear your interpretation because after I heard it, like it resonated so much, but I'm like, 
I don't get what the moral of the story is. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I I liked that poem because I felt like her, the way she described what was going on in her mind was, well, first, as you say, some of this stuff is real actions that she has to do. But yet there's also all of this, other worrying about, you know, the, the, her students and is she going to get a raise and what about her sister and blah, blah, blah. So it just, it's so much described for me the usual condition of our minds and our lives that I just could really relate to that. And then I love that sense of um, opening to just that present moment. So for me, it it was really mostly an illustration of where we usually are and also the promise that every now and then, and more if we practice it, we can open and appreciate just that, the beauty of just that present moment. So that was kind of what it said to me. That's why I read it for delusion. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Appreciate that. Yeah, go ahead. I just went, I was already thinking about this, but um, the, um, the the poem, and mm-hmm. there's already been two women up here, and a mother who had a depression. And, you know, just, just um, you know, it's just the idea of she grew up in a generation. And I, I think, you know, just thinking about that in the context of, you know, I, I almost see these demons as kind of a delusion. You know, we have our real demons in life, whether it's... Um, a woman growing up in a generation my mom did, or the color of your skin, or, uh, and then my, my own kind of a history with childhood trauma, but, you know, and just totally dissociating from an event. But uh, I think we need to kind of uh, couch those kind of demons and things that are going on in society right now. And uh, my meditation, anyway, my meditation practice is trying to get me get myself to not ignore those things, but the the more I can be in touch with those things, I think the more I can grow as a, a human being. So that's all I have. Mm, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think that we definitely can see all those forces that in these tales are told, are called demons, we see them here, you know, we see them acting out in our own minds, in our own lives, and, and yeah, this practice is very much a, a practice of uncovering those, getting familiar with those so we don't get trapped by them in a way that is gentle, you know, because with traumas and things like that, we can't necessarily just <laughs> blow ourselves open to everything. We have to be careful with it and gentle with it too. But that that aspiration to open to these difficult areas of life in society and in ourselves is really a very noble one. So thank you. Let's see. Maybe one more person online and then I think we should probably stop. Yeah. Kathy, I guess, 
has her hand up. I was uh, wondering if you could read the poem again. Oh, the first poem? Yes. Oh, okay. Maybe that's a really nice way for us to close, to end this evening, by reading that first poem again. Thank you. And then we can take with us that uh, image. Oh, I put it back in here so I wouldn't get confused. And maybe say who the author is and so forth. Yes. Um, The author is Marilyn Nelson, and the poem is called Valley High Calls Mama. So, as our closing for this evening, Valley High Calls Mama, maybe us too. As I was putting away the groceries I'd spent the morning buying for the week's meals I'd planned around things the baby could eat, things my husband would eat, and things I should eat because they aren't too fattening. Late on a Saturday afternoon, after flinging my coat on a chair and wiping the baby's nose, while asking my husband what he'd fed it for lunch and whether the medicine I'd bought for him had made his cough improve, wiping the baby's nose again, checking its diaper, stepping over the baby, who was reeling to and from the bottom kitchen drawer with pots, pans, and plastic cups, occasionally clutching the hem of my skirt and whining to be held, I was half listening for the phone, which never rings for me to ring for me and someone's voice to say that I could forget about handing back my students' exams, which I'd had for a week, that I was right about the wasteland, that I'd been given a raise, all the time wondering how my sister was doing, whatever happened to my old lovers, and why my husband wanted a certain brand of toilet paper, and wished I hadn't, but I'd bought another fashion magazine that promised to make me beautiful by Christmas. And there wasn't room for the cream corn, and every time I opened the refrigerator door, the baby rushed to grab whatever was on the bottom shelf, which meant I constantly had to wrestle jars of its smushy food out of its sticky hands, and I stepped on the baby's hand, and the baby was screaming, and I dropped the bag of cake flour I'd bought to make cookies with, and my husband rushed in to find out what was wrong, because the baby was drowning out the sound of the touchdown, although I had scooped it up and was holding it in my arms, so its crying was inside my head, like an echo in a barrel, and I was running cold water on its hand. Well, somewhere in the back of my mind, wondering what to say about the wasteland and whether I could get away with putting broccoli in the meatloaf, when suddenly, through the window, came the cry of wild geese. So thank you all for being here tonight. Sorry to be a couple minutes late, but we got to hear a poem. (laughs) So that was good. Thank you all. Good night.